Chapter 1 The Divine Pattern of Church Formation We must return to the beginning, to the genesis of the Church, to see what He said and did then. It is there we find the highest expression of His will. Acts is the genesis of the Church's history, and the Church in the time of Paul is the genesis of the Spirit's work. Conditions in the Church today are vastly different from what they were then, but these present conditions could never be our example or our authoritative guide. We must return to the beginning. Only what God has set forth as our example in the beginning is the eternal will of God. Watchman Nee Over the last fifty years, there have been nearly one hundred books written on the subject of church planting. Some of these books have the subject nailed down to a fine science. But what is surprising is that few of them discuss the ways in which churches were planted in the beginning. To my mind, it's a profound mistake to ignore what we find in the book of Acts concerning the manner in which Christian communities were birthed in the first century. As Watchman Nee writes, Never let us regard these early chapters of Acts as inapplicable today. Like the book of Genesis, the Acts of the Apostles reveals the beginnings of God's ways, and what He did then sets a pattern for His work always. The New Testament presents four ways in which churches were planted in century one. These ways weren't cultural fads or the nifty ideas of intelligent mortals. I believe they originated with God Himself. The Jerusalem Model The first way occurred in the city of Jerusalem. Twelve apostles planted one church by the preaching of Jesus Christ. See Acts chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 8, verse 3. After a period of time, the church multiplied by transplantation or migration. Because this approach began first in Jerusalem, we'll call it the Jerusalem model. According to the New Testament narrative, after four years, the seeds of the Jerusalem church were scattered and transplanted all through Palestine. Because of persecution, the believers in Jerusalem relocated to other locales, shared their faith, and churches sprang up as a result. See Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 8 and chapter 11 verses 19 through 21. For a time, the twelve apostles remained in the city. One of the outstanding characteristics of the Jerusalem dispersion is that all the Christians in Jerusalem had experienced organic church life before they relocated to form new churches. In other words, they brought to other regions their experience of Christ and the church. This is a vital point, as we will see later. Significantly, the newly transplanted churches in Palestine received the help of the apostles, even though they were not directly planted by them. The twelve circulated to the new church plants, watered the seeds, and pulled up weeds. See Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through chapter 11, verse 30. While the apostles helped establish and encourage these new churches, they did not live in them, nor did they control their affairs. The Antioch Model The classic way in which churches were planted in the first century began in Antioch of Syria. This model of church planting is most clearly seen in Acts 
chapter 13, verse 1, through chapter 20, verse 38. Here, we discover that Paul and his co-workers were sent out from Antioch to establish churches in South Galatia, Greece, and Asia Minor. This way of planting churches can be called the Antioch model. It can also be called fresh seed planting. Incidentally, Paul's journeys are best described as church planting trips or apostolic journeys. The popular term missionary journey was created in the 19th century and is a poor fit with the nature and goal of Paul's ministry. More on that later. The Antioch model can be described thusly. An apostle walks barehanded into a city to preach Jesus Christ. He does not preach the four spiritual laws, the Romans' road, the plan of salvation, or Christian theology. Nor does he preach himself. See 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Instead, he preaches a person, Jesus Christ. New converts are made as a result of the preaching of Christ. Some of them may be religious people who have a relationship with God already, the Jews. Others have never met God, the Gentiles. After leading people into a genuine encounter with God in Christ, the Apostle shows the young church how to live by the indwelling life of its newly found Lord. He discloses to the believers the eternal purpose of God, and this becomes the church's consuming vision. Note that God's eternal purpose, His grand mission, is God-centered, not human-centered. In short, the Apostle imparts into the spirits of the believing community the same heavenly vision that he himself has received. See Acts chapter 26, verse 13, and Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. The Apostle also passes on to the new church the apostolic tradition that originated with Jesus. See 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, and chapter 3, verse 6. He unfolds the unsearchable riches of Christ, His greatness, and His all-sufficiency to the hearts of God's people. See Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. And this is what it means to build a church on Jesus Christ as the only foundation. See Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, and chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Having the Lord Jesus Christ as a foundation means that the church learns to wholly depend upon, rest in, and live by Christ. The gospel that the first century apostles preached was one of Christ's lordship and God's pure and unfailing grace in him. Paul of Tarsus, for example, did not forge people together with rules, religious duty, or legalism. Instead, he preached a gospel of grace so high and so powerful that it kicked down the gates of hell, setting the Jew free from religious duty and the Gentile free from immorality. His was a double-barreled, two-fisted gospel. The aftermath of such ministry is that the newly founded church stood awash with the glories, the joys, and the freedom of Jesus Christ. See Acts chapter 13, verse 52, and 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, 
and chapter 3, verse 17. Note that the early apostles had been given a glorious, breathtaking revelation of Christ, which poured out of their spirits before they could impart that revelation to others. Consider Paul's words. To reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him. Galatians chapter 1, verse 16. The immediate and long-lasting fruit of this heavenly vision was this. God's people fell in love with their Lord and with one another. In effect, Paul and his co-workers instructed the new Christians on how to live by the Christ who indwelt them. They showed them how to fellowship with the Lord together and individually. They equipped God's people to function corporately under the Lord's direct headship without any human officiation. The apostles also prepared the believers for the trials that they were bound to face in the future. See Acts chapter 14, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 31, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4. Consequently, the apostolic ministry was not only spiritual, it was intensely practical. After saturating the new believers with a revelation of Christ, Paul did the unthinkable. He abandoned the church into the Lord's hands. He gently pushed the believers out of their nest and left them on their own. And he did so without hiring a pastor, a clergyman, or appointing elders to supervise them. What is more, he left the church on its own in its infancy and in the face of imminent persecution. According to the Antioch model, the apostle typically spent anywhere from three to six months laying the ground floor of a church before leaving it. This means that Paul and his co-workers would abandon a church when it was just beginning to crawl. Elders eventually emerged within many of the assemblies and were publicly recognized, but this came later. And the elders' task was never that of governing or controlling the church, nor was it to monopolize the church's ministry. I've discussed this in depth elsewhere. Notwithstanding, once leaving, the apostle didn't return to the church for a long period of time, anywhere from six months to two years. This is the pattern of church planting as shown to us by Paul after he was sent out from Antioch. What a mighty, fireproof gospel Paul must have delivered to these new converts. What confidence in the risen Christ he must have had to do such a startling thing as to leave a church on its own while it was still in diapers. Roland Allen astutely observes, The facts are these. St. Paul preached in the place for five or six months, and then left behind him a church, not indeed free from the need of guidance, but capable of growth and expansion. The question before us is, how could he so train his converts as to be able to leave them after so short a time with any security, that they would be able to stand and grow. It seems at first sight almost incredible. What could he have taught them in five or six months? The net effect is that the Apostle's gospel was tested to its core. If the gospel he preached was indeed Christ, or as Paul put it, if it was made of gold, silver, and precious stones, the church would stand through crisis. See 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. On the other hand, if the gospel that the apostle brought was made of combustible materials, wood, hay, and stubble, it would burn to the ground 
when any heat came to try it. If an apostle plants the church, using imperishable materials, and it is nurtured properly, all it needs will spontaneously develop from within. In time, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, overseers, etc., will naturally and organically emerge, just as naturally and organically as the physical members develop on an infant as it matures. T. Austin Sparks speaks of this experience, saying, Thus, having set aside all the former system of organized Christianity, we committed ourselves to the principle of the organic. No order was set up. No officers or ministries were appointed. We left it with the Lord to make manifest by gift and anointing who were chosen of Him for oversight and ministry. The one-man ministry has never emerged. The overseers have never been chosen by vote or selection, and certainly not by the expressed desire of any leader. No committees or official bodies have ever existed in any part of the work. Things in the main have issued from prayer. Such organic development is basic to all life forms. A rose seed has within its germ a stem, leaves, and a budding flower. If the seed is planted and properly nurtured, these features will naturally manifest themselves in time. In the same way, the requisite gifts and ministries of the Church of Jesus Christ will naturally develop if it's planted and nurtured properly for they are built into her very DNA. Biblically speaking, a church is a spiritual organism, not a human organization. It is a biological entity. As such, it develops naturally when the agent who planted it leaves it on its own. Of course, church planters should return periodically to water it, fertilize it, and pull up the weeds that seek to choke its life. Hence, a large part of an apostle's task is to keep foreign elements out of the church so that it can grow naturally and organically. More on that later. This understanding of church development is in stark contrast to the prevalent model of trying to appoint various ministries and gifts, like elders, prophets, and teachers, on the basis of a pro forma adherence to a New Testament pattern. Such a mechanical method of church formation will only produce a pathetic, paper-thin image of the church. It's like trying to create a mature rose by locating stem, leaves, and petals, then stringing them together with nylon thread. It is a violation of the organic, innate nature of the church, and it defies the biblical reality that the ecclesia is, in fact, a living organism. All told, the Antioch model rests on the suppositions that the church is organic, it's born by a presentation of Jesus Christ, and it organically grows in the absence of the founding apostle after he leaves it on its own. Yet it requires his return to oversee the church's growth and keep foreign elements from choking and corrupting its life. See Acts chapters 13 through 20. As Howard Snyder says, Church growth is a matter of removing the hindrances to growth. The church will naturally grow, if not limited by unbiblical barriers. The Antioch model, or fresh seed planting, is the classic way in which churches are raised up in the first century. Again, Roland Allen 
candidly observes, In a very few years, Paul built the church on so firm a basis that it could live and grow in faith and in practice, that it could work out its own problems and overcome all dangers and hindrances, both from within and without. So in the Jerusalem model, the church leaves the apostolic worker. But in the Antioch model, the apostolic worker leaves the church. But the end result is the same. Once the foundation of a church is laid by an apostolic worker, God's people are left on their own without any extra local help. Comparing the Antioch and Jerusalem models, Watchman Nee writes, We find there are two ways of preaching the gospel and of establishing churches two distinct methods illustrated respectively by Jerusalem and Antioch. From Antioch, apostles go forth. From Jerusalem, scattered saints go forth. In the one case, bands of apostles move out. It may be Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas, or Paul and Timothy, to preach the gospel from place to place, to form churches and to return. In the other case, those who believe emigrate to new cities and new lands, preaching and telling of the Lord Jesus wherever they go. And wherever these who migrate are found, churches spring up. The Ephesian Model A third type of church planting began in the city of Ephesus. Therefore we call it the Ephesian Model. In his later years Paul traveled to Ephesus. Before he descended on that city, however, he had planted approximately eight churches over a period of seven years. What Paul accomplished in Ephesus was as unique as it was brilliant. He made Ephesus a training center from which the gospel would go forth and where young men could be trained to plant churches. Paul rented a meeting place called the Hall of Tyrannus, where he preached and taught every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. This part of the training went on for two solid years. The men who Paul trained were Titus from Antioch, Timothy from Lystra, Gaius from Derby, Aristarchus from Thessalonica, Secundus from Thessalonica, Sopater from Berea, Tychicus from Ephesus, and Trophimus from Ephesus. Epaphras from Colossae could also be added to the list. It appears that Paul led him to the Lord while he was in Ephesus. Sometime afterward, Epaphras planted three churches in the Lycus Valley of Asia Minor one in Colossae, one in Laodicea, and one in Hierapolis. See Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. New Testament scholar Donald Guthrie observes, It must have been during this period, for instance, that the churches of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, all in the Lycus Valley, were established, although Paul himself did not visit them. Men like Epaphras and Philemon, who were known to the Apostle, possibly came under his influence in the Hall of Tyrannus. In the same vein, F. F. Bruce writes, To this great city then Paul came, and stayed there for the best part of three years, directing the evangelization of Ephesus itself and of the province as a whole. Plainly, he was assisted in this work by a number of colleagues, like Epaphras, who evangelized the Phrygian cities of the Lycus Valley, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. And so effectively did they work 
that as Luke puts it, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. While the New Testament doesn't explicitly say that Paul trained eight men in Ephesus, it strongly suggests it. Consider the following points. 1. All eight men were present in Ephesus with Paul during his lengthy season there. Just as the twelve lived with Jesus for three and a half years, so Paul's apprentices lived with Paul for about the same amount of time. In Ephesus, Paul duplicated the ministry of Jesus Christ in Galilee. 2. The eight men each served as representatives from their churches to bring a financial contribution to Jerusalem. However, instead of traveling directly to Jerusalem with their contribution, they met Paul in Ephesus and remained with him for three years. Timothy and Gaius were from Galatia, which is much closer to Jerusalem than was Ephesus. 3. Paul spoke at the Hall of Tyrannus for five hours a day for two years. The intensity of his ministry has all the marks of training on it. 4. Paul paid for his own needs and the needs of these men. See Acts chapter 20, verse 34. Why would he support them if he wasn't training them? And finally, 5. After the Ephesian trip, Paul sent these men out to work with the churches he planted, as well as to plant new churches in new territories. This is similar to Jesus sending out the twelve on their trial mission. See Mark chapter 6, verse 7. David Schenck and Irvin Stutzman sum up the Ephesian model nicely, saying, When Paul left Ephesus, he took with him a cluster of persons to visit some of the churches which he had planted in Macedonia and Greece. We may assume that these persons were leaders he had trained in Ephesus. He wanted them to see the churches he told them about in his church-planting classes. These persons included Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. He wanted these leaders, experienced in church development in Asia, also to experience Christian fellowship in European churches. This journey was a cross-cultural church planting trip for the leaders whom Paul was training. Since Paul's apprentices were from different churches in diverse regions, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia, they undoubtedly learned from one another as each man shared his unique experience of organic church life in his own culture. Later in the Ephesian training, Paul sent his eight apprentices all over Asia Minor to preach the gospel of Christ and plant new churches. Some of these churches are listed in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. F.F. F. Bruce writes, While Paul stayed in Ephesus, a number of his colleagues carried out missionary activity in neighboring cities. During those years, his colleague Epaphras appeared to have evangelized the cities of the Lycus Valley, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, cities which Paul evidently did not visit in person. See Colossians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Perhaps all seven of the churches in Asia addressed in the Revelation of John were also founded about this time. The province was intensely evangelized and remained one of the leading centers of Christianity for many centuries. In short, Paul's eight apprentices were the equivalent of the Lord's twelve apostles. The twelve brought the gospel to the Jewish world. Paul's young co-workers, 
brought it to the Gentile world. The Roman Model The fourth and final model is illustrated by the Church in Rome. I call it inverted transplantation. In the Jerusalem model, one church transplants itself into many different cities, thus creating many new churches. But in the Roman model, Christians living in many different churches transplant themselves into one city to found one new church. This is what appears to have happened in Rome, Italy. The evidence for this model is compelling. Some New Testament scholars have argued that Romans chapter 16 was not written to the church in Rome, but to the church in Ephesus. The reason? Paul had never been to Rome before he wrote Romans. Yet he knew all the people listed in chapter 16, some of whom had previously lived in Ephesus. Others have argued that the people Paul greets in Romans chapter 16 coincidentally moved to Rome, and they all ended up in the same church. But these two theories are unlikely. It seems that the original Roman church was primarily Jewish. Luke tells us that visitors from Rome came to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard Peter preach the gospel. See Acts chapter 2 verse 10. It appears that some of them returned to Rome and began to gather there. Priscilla and Aquila were probably part of this group. However, in A.D. 49, Emperor Claudius passed an edict that expelled all Jews from Rome. See Acts chapter 18 verse 2. When Paul writes his letter to the Romans in A.D. 57, many Jewish believers are back in the church. Many Gentile believers are in it also. In Romans chapter 16, Paul greets 26 individuals and five households, all of whom he knows personally. Virtually all of them have come from the various churches that Paul planted over the years. The scenario that best fits the evidence is that Paul sent Priscilla and Aquila back to Rome once Claudius's edict was lifted in A.D. 54. One clue that supports this view is how Priscilla and Aquila helped Paul plant the church in Ephesus. Four years before Paul wrote his famous Roman letter, he brought this remarkable couple to Ephesus and left them there to labor before he returned to plant the Ephesian church. See Acts chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. New Testament scholars William Sandy and Arthur Hedlam Observe that Prisca and Aquila should be at Rome is just what we might expect from one with so keen an eye for the strategy of a situation as St. Paul. When he was himself established and in full work at Ephesus with the intention of visiting Rome, it would at once occur to him what valuable work they might be doing there and what an excellent preparation they might make for his own visit, while in his immediate surroundings they were almost superfluous so that instead of presenting any difficulty, that he should send them back to Rome, where they were already known, is most natural. After sending Priscilla and Aquila ahead of him to Rome, Paul asked various individuals, both Jew and Gentile, from the various churches he planted to move to Rome. The goal? To plant a multicultural church of Jew and Gentile in the cosmopolitan city of Rome. Paul planned to preach the gospel in Rome and use this newly transplanted church as a platform to reach the city. He eventually came to Rome, but not in a way that he expected. He arrived there as a prisoner. 
The church in Rome turned out to be a glorious church, the envy of the empire. This reconstruction fits the evidence much better than to assume that Romans chapter 16 is part of the Ephesian letter and was misplaced with the letter to the Romans. There is no strong textual or manuscript evidence that would warrant us to separate Romans chapter 16 from the Roman epistle. It's also more reasonable than to assume that the 26 individuals coincidentally relocated to Rome in the space of only three years. Further, in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, Paul makes plain that he will not build a church on another person's foundation. He talks to the Romans as if he were their apostle. In Romans chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that he will preach the gospel in Rome when he arrives in the city. Several scholars working in the field of epistolography have concluded that Paul sent his greetings in Romans chapter 16 in order to make evident the nature of his relationship with the believers in Rome and thus establish his apostolic authority there. Piecing all the evidence together, then, it's reasonable to believe that Paul is the apostle in Rome by inverted transplantation. This scenario explains how Paul could know all the people he greets in Romans chapter 16 without disconnecting it from the Roman letter. It also gives us clear insight into yet another way of planting the church of Jesus Christ. The Team Concept The New Testament clearly demonstrates that God is a fan of apostolic workers laboring in teams, particularly in pairs. This is not always the case throughout Scripture. For Paul, Peter, Timothy, Titus, Epaphras, and others labored in some places alone. However, the general rule is that the work of God was accomplished by those who labored together. Note the following. The twelve apostles are listed in pairs. See Matthew chapter 10, verses 2, 3, and 4. Jesus sent the twelve out in pairs for a trial mission. See Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus sent the seventy-two out in pairs for a field assignment. See Luke chapter 10, verse 1. The twelve, minus Judas, are listed in pairs when Luke mentions them in the upper room. See Acts chapter 1, verse 13. The Lord often sent a pair of his disciples to fulfill some task. See Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, and Luke chapter 22, verse 8. Peter and John work together as a pair. See Acts chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verses 1 and 13, and chapter 8, verse 14. Paul and Barnabas work together as a pair. See Acts chapter 13 to chapter 15, verse 35. Barnabas and Mark work together as a pair. See Acts chapter 15, verse 39. Paul and Silas work together as a pair. See Acts chapter 15, verse 40. And Paul sent pairs of men to serve in the work. See Acts chapter 19, verse 22, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. The above examples should not be misconstrued to be an artificial or mechanical method. Instead, the workers who traveled together grew up in an organic church life with one another. See Luke chapter 22, verse 8, John chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, 
and Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Traveling together was simply the natural impulse of spiritual life. The team concept reflects the need for Christian workers to have peers. This prevents them from being self-styled lone rangers in God's work. Although team ministry is a clear biblical pattern, we rarely see it in our day. I personally consider this to be one of the great shames and indictments of our age. While it may not always be possible or practical in every context, it should happen more than it does. Strategy for Spontaneous Expansion There's another point worth mentioning that has to do with Paul's church-planting strategy. Paul was an urban church planter. For the most part, he bypassed the rural areas and ignored the small communities. Instead, he went directly to the major urban areas. He concentrated on planting indigenous churches in influential cities that had large populations. It is for this reason that the word pagan has come to refer to non-Christian people. The word pagan is derived from the ancient word for farmer, which means country dweller. A similar etymology lies behind the word heathen. Heathens were those who lived on the heath, that is, out in the country. Christianity was rarely successful outside the cities of the ancient world. Because our faith is inherently relational, the church was unable to successfully take root outside of urban settings. In urban areas, Christians could see one another in their day-to-day lives and easily care for one another. In the countryside, believers were more isolated from each other. Therefore, they had a difficult time fleshing out the one-anothers that the New Testament so often emphasizes. Consequently, Christianity has always been dominantly urban. But Paul's strategy in planting churches in large cities went beyond making it conducive for community life. It was also to allow the gospel to spread spontaneously. See 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. An organic church, when properly functioning, will draw the lost by her sheer magnetism and charm. In the big city, where there's no shortage of people who live in close proximity, this is feasible. But in the countryside, it's far more difficult. Speaking of the spontaneous expansion of the church, Roland Allen writes, This, then, is what I mean by spontaneous expansion. I mean the expansion which follows the unexhorted and unorganized activity of individual members of the church, explaining to others the gospel which they have found for themselves. I mean the expansion which follows the irresistible attraction of the Christian church for men who see its ordered life and are drawn to it by desire to discover the secret of a life which they instinctively desire to share. I mean also the expansion of the church by the addition of new churches. Pisidian Antioch, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome were not sleepy little towns. They were strategic cities where spontaneous expansion could easily occur. On this score, F. F. Bruce remarks, So Paul traveled along the Roman highways, the main lines of communication, preaching the gospel and planting churches in strategic centers. From those centers, the saving message would be disseminated. 
Strikingly, to Paul's mind, an entire province was evangelized if he planted a few churches in the central cities that belonged to it. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he and his co-workers had planted fewer than twenty churches in Galatia, Greece, Asia Minor, and Rome. Yet, according to Paul, the gospel had been fully preached from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. In only ten years, with fewer than twenty Gentile churches on the planet, Paul felt that there was no further place for him to preach in the regions from Jerusalem to Rome. See Romans chapter 15, verses 19 through 24. As Donald Guthrie puts it, Turning to his immediate plans, Paul makes the astonishing statement that he finds no further room for work in the regions just mentioned. This does not mean that the areas have been completely evangelized, for Paul's strategy was to plant churches in important centers, and then, to expect the developing churches, to evangelize the surrounding district. Only by this means was he able to work in so many areas. Church planting strategy and the guidance of the Holy Spirit are not mutually exclusive. Because apostolic workers are sent by God, the work they do belongs to God and not to them. Accordingly, the Lord orchestrates and pioneers His own work. He chooses where the gospel is to be preached and where His workers are to travel. He also engineers the timing when this should take place. See Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 11 and 19 and 20. Chapter 13, verses 2, 3, and 4. Chapter 16, verses 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 18, verses 8 through 11. And chapter 23, verse 11. And Galatians, chapter 2, verse 2. Apostles work in areas where a local church invites them, or if they have received a revelation to go to a particular place. First century workers were not strangers to the Lord's inward guidance. See 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7-16. through 16. After all, it is Jesus Christ who creates the church by His Spirit. Humans are but His instruments. Summary To recap, the New Testament gives us four ways in which churches were planted in the first century and visible communities of God's kingdom were established. They are 1. The Jerusalem Model a group of apostolic workers spends years raising up one large church. After a number of years, the church is transplanted into many different cities, thus creating many new churches. The workers visit those new churches and lay fresh foundations for them. 2. The Antioch Model Apostolic workers are sent out from a local church to plant new churches in new cities. The workers leave these churches in their infancy, but give periodic help and encouragement as they mature. 3. The Ephesian Model An older worker resides in a particular city to plant a new church and train younger workers. He then sends those workers out to plant new churches in nearby regions. And finally, 4. The Roman Model Christians from many different churches transplant themselves into a particular city to establish one new church. Because these four models of church planting are God-given, I don't believe they can be improved upon. Ironically, it is rare to find many people observing them today. Along this line, Watchman Nee writes, Though today the places we visit and the conditions we meet 
may be vastly different from those of the Scripture record. Yet in principle the experience of the first apostles may well serve as our example. Christianity has lost its original purity, and everything connected with it is in a false and confused state. Despite that fact, our work today is still the same as in the days of the early apostles, to found and build up local churches, the local expressions of the body of Christ. Roland Alland echoes the same sentiment, saying, Today, if a man ventures to suggest that there may be something in the methods by which St. Paul attained such wonderful results worthy of our careful attention, and perhaps of our imitation, he is in danger of being accused of revolutionary tendencies. All I can say is, this is the way of Christ and his apostles. If any man answers that this is out of date or times have changed, I can only repeat, this is the way of Christ and his apostles, and leave him to face that issue. I wish that every person who feels called to plant churches would re-examine the principles of the New Testament and, with the Lord's leading, reclaim them.